You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back, all of our participants here for our gospel reflection for the eighth Sunday after Holy Cross. Get out our Bibles and get ourselves ready to do a good study here of the gospel text, which is quite famous. I will welcome uh, Father Daniel to the uh, the program. Deacon Daniel Dozier, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to be here, Father. Thank you. Yeah, it's a blessing to have you as we dive into this famous text of the Good Samaritan that is quite well known to all of us. And I want to warn everybody, this is a, I've said this so many times, that these passages, these stories that are kind of like, they're just so well known from our childhood even. And we become, as a friend of mine used to say, like in a Catholic comatose, we're just state, we're just, we just kind of like, we're like, yeah, that's a nice story. And we move on because we've heard it so many times. We've got to kind of take the shock paddles, shock ourselves out of it and start to ask real questions about it so that we can grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our knowledge of the Lord. So we're going to try to do that here with this text in Luke chapter 10 and do what we usually do. And that is, Take it apart and get the historical context, the geographical context, the uh, the political context, or in this case, maybe political theological, because we've got these guys, the Levites, and so forth. We need to know who all these guys are, and that's what our goal is going to be here in our time together: is to get make sure that we're all on the same page as far as who these guys are and uh, in in the story, who they represent, and then be able to apply it properly as the fathers did to our spiritual life. So let's let's jump right into that then here in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25 and going through verse 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. At that time, behold, a certain lawyer got up to test Jesus, saying, Master, what must I do to gain eternal life? But he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? He answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, and thy whole soul, and thy whole strength, and with thy whole mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, sa- and, he, and he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you shall live. But he, wishing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in with the robbers who after both stripping him and beating him, went their way, leaving him half dead. But as it happened, a certain priest was going down the same way. And when he saw him, he passed by and answered, and likewise, a Levite also, when he was near the place and saw him, passed by. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came upon him, and seeing him, was moved with compassion. And he went up to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and setting him on his beast. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. And as he was leaving the next day, he took out two denarii, two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you send, 
I, you, you spend, I on my way back will repay you. Which of these three, in your opinion, proved himself neighbor to the man who fell among the robber? And he said, the one who took pity on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do as he did. Um, you know, Father, this, as I said before, this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan is so famous to us that we become almost um, deaf to the message that Jesus is sharing with us. And there's multiple layers of interpretation here. And we need to get into these, these multiple layers, starting out with, with kind of the most basic and then building upon that, making sure that we know all of these characters, you know, as, as I was getting ready, preparing, I wrote down each person in the story, even though I kind of know them, you got to make sure you keep them in order, you right. know, who these people are. And then I want to be able to, in a sense, answer, you know, who they are in their proper historical context. But then as a, as a parable is always dives deeper. Uh, there's something more here. Who, the, who do these guys represent and so forth? But let's start at that basic level and uh, please kind of help us understand this historical, political uh, context so that we can uh, gain the fruits of the, of the gospel story. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of those stories. It has universal appeal. Uh, in fact, if people were to be asked, unbelievers even asked, you know, what, who was Jesus and what did he teach? More than likely, you would hear the story of the Good Samaritan sure. as one of those stories. And many uh, apostolates, uh, Christian apostolates, both Catholic and non-Catholic actually identify uh, in their titles this uh, reference to the Samaritan, Samaritan's Purse, or whatever you want to think about. Right. This, uh, these are all examples of the impact uh, and the resonance of this story just at a very basic human level. And I think it resonates for a couple different reasons. One is uh, you're looking at a story of compassion and mercy towards one's neighbor, and that neighbor in the end turns out to be uh, an enemy. And of course, that has a very dramatic effect. Uh, you know, when you when you just think about the story itself, it's oftentimes the theme of, of different movies or, or plays. I mean, there so, so there's there is again at, at a very basic human level, and then you've got these other characters who are supposed to represent mercy and compassion and righteousness uh, in the priest and the Levite, and they don't do any of that. I mean, they're they're just not fulfilling what their uh, stated objectives in terms of their ministry, in terms of their religious observance, what it's supposed to be. But it's rather the surprise at the end that it's the Samaritan, the enemy, uh, supposed enemy of this, of this person who was robbed uh, on, on his way uh, to Jericho from Jerusalem. He becomes the hero of the story. In a sense, if you think about it in reference to the Corporal Works of Mercy, which is a uh, kind of our list of, of the works of mercy and care for the body. We have feed the hungry, we have give drink to the thirsty, shelter the homeless, visit and care for the sick, visit the prisoners, bury the dead, give alms to the poor. At least six of those, uh, of the seven, are covered in this particular story. So the Samaritan truly is heroic in the sense of the virtues he demonstrates. He's a model of demonstrating mercy to, to enemies. And so I think this has that kind of resonance at a very basic level because of those, those elements in the story. There's so many, there's so many wrinkles and layers here that we're going to get into. Right. Um, I mean, for the first one is just that we're in the midst of Jesus telling parables, which itself is maybe, I think for modern American uh, might be even, even challenging. We don't usually talk in, the, in this way, 
Um, right. So we would constantly have to remind ourselves of what a, what, what a parable is. But there's so many wrinkles here. One of them, I mean, it just caught me just, just as I was just reading this right here with you, that when Jesus says, when he, at the end, when he says, who, you know, who is the, basically, who is the righteous one here? Mm-hmm. And the guy says, he says, the one who took pity on him. And I wonder, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't say the Samaritan, right? I mean, he couldn't bring himself, <laughs> he couldn't bring himself quite to accept. Yeah. So I don't know if that's, that's but, but let's get into this a little bit more now and uh, take a look at, first of all, kind of help us understand what a parable is, what its purposes are, as we draw into this particular parable. Well, and, and parables essentially are, are stories that are told that you know, have sort of that basic level of meaning that relate to events and common occurrences in everyday life, but there's a deeper level of mystery or story or meaning that's, that's underneath the, the actual narrative. And Jesus employed parables very often, very frequently in his teaching. In fact, if you look at the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, almost a third of his teachings uh, pertain to this use, this employment of the literary form of parable, which says that this was an important method of his. When he explains, in fact, in, in the Gospel of Luke, in, in chapter 8, verse 10, he explains why he communicates things in parables. He says, he's speaking to his, uh, his intimate group of disciples here, so basically the 12. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Mm-hmm. This happens before Jesus explains the parable of the sower to them, because they want the interpretation. And so it's that rare moment where Jesus actually clarifies the meaning of the parable of the sower and gives them that interpretation. But what he says there, when he says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, it's really an intertestamental echo, which is basically a text drawn from the Old Testament situated in the New Testament that's meant to evoke a broader context for the hearer or for the, for, the, uh, for the reader. In this particular case, it comes from the prophet Isaiah, whom we know was one of the, the prophets before and after the exile of Israel, or excuse me, of Judah, uh, when uh, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the holy city, they destroyed the holy temple. And so he was there uh, called by God in this divine calling in the temple to be a prophet. He was of a priestly caste, so he was of a priestly family. And he was called to warn them uh, of the impending doom, the impending attack that was coming from the Babylonians. And there's a passage there in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Yeah, let's, let's, turn, let's turn there. Uh, everybody, again, get, we don't do Bible studies without Bibles, so go get your Bible out if you don't have it out yet so that we can, uh, so that we can do this together. You're saying, Isaiah, what, what was the Isaiah chapter? Isaiah chapter 6, okay. verses 9 through 13. Isaiah chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Starting with verse 9, you said? Yep, verse 9, going to 13. He says, uh, Isaiah, or or, excuse me, the Lord is saying to Isaiah, he says, hear and hear, but do not understand. He says, go and say this to the people. Hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, that kind of is a, is a strange thing for us to think about the Lord saying this yeah. to the prophet. But basically what he's saying is, lull them to sleep. <laughs> you know, make them fat, make them happy, lull them to sleep, lest they turn and be healed. Well, why, why would the Lord say that? Well, basically the measure of sin had reached its fullness when it comes to Israel. 
in relationship or comes to Judah in relationship to God's law. And so, you know, this was not the time really for repentance. That, that time had basically passed. It was, it was inevitable what was going to come, that we were going to see the destruction of the holy city and the holy temple and, and basically the undoing of God's creation of his chosen people so that he might, after exile, bring about a, a faithful remnant. Uh, who was going to hear the word of God and, and keep the word of God. And so Jesus, in making reference to Isaiah, basically is positioning himself to be like Isaiah the prophet, as a fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet, because there is another judgment that's coming to, in fact, the same city of Jerusalem, which in AD 70 is going to undergo the destruction of the city, uh, over a million Jews uh, who, will, who will die and perish in the attack of the Romans, and, of course, the holy temple, uh, will be destroyed. So all of these events are going to come about. And so Jesus is like the prophet Isaiah giving a warning to Israel and, and to God's people saying, you need to hear the word of God, but it's only going to be this faithful remnant who's going to hear it. And that faithful remnant are those who are gathered around Jesus as his faithful, as his faithful disciples. You know, there's, you're, you're looking to 70, 80 and the destruction. As you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking of Christ going to the cross, even that that is a that I don't know if you say it prefigures 70 AD or whatever. It, it at least at least chronologically takes place first, and there in a similar way, there's going to be this this cosmic event by right. which God brings the faithful remnant out through the mystery of the holy resurrection. Here in the context of Luke, help us understand why Jesus then. I mean, I can kind of see what you're talking about in the Old Testament with Isaiah. Babylonian exile and so forth. But now we're in a, this place with Jesus in his ministry in the context of the gospel. And I'm thinking, I'm standing there thinking, here, there's these guys all around him. And now he says, too late for you. <laughs> I mean, if that's if we're going to apply Isaiah. Uh, so where is Jesus in his ministry? And where does this fit into the gospel narrative so that we can understand why Jesus is so kind of almost radical in his condemnation of these guys? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great question because I think really if we want to understand the message, really any message of Jesus, we have to read it in the context of whatever the, the gospel right. is, is saying in its first century context as well. So if we look at it in the context of, of Luke's gospel, what, what is really Luke's concern? Well, he's really concerned about two primary things. First of all, Jesus is there uh, to announce the gospel and it has a universal scope, but he's going to start with the Jews. He's going to start with his chosen people. And when he refers to his chosen people, he's not just referring to the Udayoi, the, the, the Jews of, of Judah. Uh, he's also talking about the Samaritans, uh, who are the ancestral remnants of those who, who were left behind after the Assyrians uh, attacked the northern kingdom. And, the, and they have the, the 10 tribes that are basically dispersed and disappear. We have this kind of this remnant that's left behind of, of the Samaritans who keep a portion of the canon of the, of the Old Testament, uh, which we refer to as the Pentateuch or the Torah. So they, they believe in that. They reject the other parts, the prophets especially. Anything with the Davidic reference, they're not going to like too much because of the, the civil war between the northern and the southern kingdom was, was predicated on this problem with the Davidic line of succession and Solomon's son, you know, caused this great division because of his greed through taxation. So we have the civil war that breaks out and so the Samaritans break off, or the, uh, the northern tribes break off from the southern tribes. They set up a competing temple. They set up a competing priesthood. 
basically an, an entire kingdom, a northern kingdom separate from the southern kingdom. And so these Samaritans, as part of that, that remnant of, the, of the, nor- the ten tribes to the north, have a, a rival temple, rival priesthood. But the gospel is meant for them as well. And, and Luke, in writing his gospel, you know, he, he's sponsored by a Roman official, Theophilus, who we know as Theophilus. And he's writing to Gentile Christians as well as Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians around the Mediterranean. And so this message is meant to demonstrate the universality of the gospel for those who first received the revelation of God, that is, uh, the Jewish people, and secondly, for the Gentiles. And so, and so Luke's concern is to make sure everybody knows came to the Jews first, but now it's meant for the whole world. You know, this is, I think, a nice little opportunity to throw in a little Bible study for people that want to go a little, a couple steps further. You might want to go back and read First Kings chapter 11, mm-hmm. First Kings chapter 11, First Kings chapter 12, and then uh, you can also, you can keep reading on or just skip to First Kings chapter 16, mm-hmm. specifically looking at verses 21 through 24 where you see this, this, this location in the Northern Kingdom that is established then as the, as the throne city of the North, which then extends its name to all of the North Samaria. It's very important because we've heard of the Samaritan so many times. Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. Here we have the story of the Samaritan again. This is a very simple, very basic map of Palestine in the time of, uh, time of Christ. And you'll see here this area called called Samaria, and then this area down here called Judea. And just for basic kind of our own knowledge, you get, remember, Babylonian exile takes place over a number of years, but give or take about 600 years before Christ. And, that, and that's when, here we read in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, just before that, the northern 10 tribes up in this area, break from the, the throne city of Jerusalem and are eventually conquered by the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. And then following that, the Babylonians, who are kind of the next empire that, that rises up, comes and marches on Jerusalem and conquers what is then called Judea and, and takes them in the, into the Babylonian exile. So these Samaritans become kind of like, right? like almost like kind of Jewish half-breeds in the sense, right? But not only, not only do they end up getting married to foreign peoples that are brought in by right. the Assyrians, but they begin worshiping their gods. And this becomes, this is like not cool, right? So, right. so they're kind of this half, these kind of half-breeds. I'm sorry, Father, I completely no, jumped in here. It's absolutely, it's absolutely great. And I think it really helps to understand a little bit of where, you know, Jesus, the, uh, the geography of the Gospels is almost right. as the teaching tool as the words and deeds of Jesus, you know, at this point in time, he's actually, uh, he's finished his Galilean ministry and he's moving towards Jerusalem along, you have that movement kind of along uh, the bank of the Jordan, which actually goes out into the, into the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Jesus is making his movement south towards Jerusalem. And, and this becomes important in part because we have this confrontation uh, that occurs in the gospel earlier in the gospel of Luke with the Samaritans. And uh, if I could, if I could read that, I think it's an interesting thing to understand a little bit about this context because it, Jesus is, is in fact reaching out to the Samaritans. He's there with his gospel for the Jews first and, and for the Samaritans who were 
uh, that ancestral remnant of the people of God. Uh, but if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 51, we see something interesting in relationship to the Samaritans. As Luke Jesus chapter, you're saying chapter, chapter 9? Chapter 9, verse 51. Okay. So this is, this is where a Samaritan village is going to refuse to receive Jesus. And so, this is going on right before our gospel text, right? Right before the gospel text. Okay. So this helps to set up a little bit of the context of this. So yeah. Jesus, in, in, in moving away from Galilee now towards Jerusalem, it says, when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, why is this significant? Well, we have this turn again from Galilee towards Jerusalem. Jesus is going to, um, going to enter into his uh, initial glorification to the triumphal entry, but then it's going to uh, turn into a uh, basically his end, his passion, uh, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection um, and ascension. But uh, up until that time, he is now on that journey, and he's passing through the Samaritan village. Well, the Samaritans expected that there would be a Messiah. I mean, they remembered uh, the teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. Uh, there, there would be one who would be like Moses who would come and and teach them, and they should listen to him. So Samaritans had the same uh, Old Testament canon in the sense of the, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah. They didn't observe the prophets, as I mentioned before, but they knew there would be one who would come. But they expected one who was going to come and uphold uh, the belief in the, in the primacy of Mount Gerizim and the temple that was on Mount Gerizim. Jesus is going down, and he's not going to, he's not going to Mount Gerizim. Uh, he's not a Messiah that they wanted or expected. He's rather going to Jerusalem. And so they, they reject him. They, they, uh, because he has his face set towards, uh, towards Jerusalem. So that event in itself, I think, says a lot about the relationship that Jesus has with the Samaritans, that some of the Samaritans will receive the gospel, as we hear about the woman at the well and other, other stories, but others will reject him. Well, that sort of, in a way, it creates a juxtaposition with the, uh, with the other side, the Jewish side, with the scribe, who represents the law, and he's going to test Jesus. Basically, he's going to oppose Jesus publicly for exactly the same reason, in a sense that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, but he's coming as a Messiah that he did not expect. He's yeah. coming as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 in a way that, you know, this, this, is, this is not what the scribe expected. You right. know, memorizing the traditions of the elders, repeating things through wrote, all of a sudden Jesus is coming in power and in sign. It's not what he expected. You know, this, this context is super helpful. And it's, it's important to remember, you know, as you're saying, he's completed his Galilean ministry. His Galilean ministry is really, in some ways, the heart of his ministry, whereas his kind of healing ministry. Um, if you want to say, where do the miracles all happen for the most part? I mean, yes, you have some miracles going on in Jerusalem. But, the, the, I mean, it's, it's Galilee where it's just like one thing after another, after another, after another. And yeah. here now he's, draw, he's, he's making his, his, like you're saying, he set his face to Jerusalem. He's making his way down there. All these guys around him know what he's just done. Yeah. And it helps us understand this business you were talking about in Isaiah. They're like, you know, 
in some sense, in some sense, it's over. If they haven't accepted him as the Messiah by now, there's nothing more he can do for these people. So this is this is like kind of the dramatic backdrop, you know, for this exchange and interaction that takes place, which we now have to kind of take apart. We're going to need to get into these guys. You know, who are who who is this this lawyer or scribe? Right, uh, guy, and who are who are these other people that start coming into the story? You know, they represent not only themselves but a whole I mean, a group of people there that are watching Jesus having done these miracles, and now are going to really go with him to Jerusalem and going to play their part there too. Exactly right, and and I and I think if I might just mention one other thing around the context for this, uh, something that occurs in also in chapter ten, but earlier in, in chapter ten, actually even earlier than that. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, we have Jesus commissioning the 12 to go out, and they, of course, perform signs and miracles as a result of them going out. But then we have the 70, and uh, the, this mission of the 70 that where Jesus sends these, these, uh, these disciples of his out. Again, manifestations, great signs of power and wonder uh, that they're performing. Jesus even says, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know, there's almost this general exorcism of the cosmos mm. that's occurring because these 70 have gone out in power just like the 12 did. Well, the, the number 70, of course, if we, if we know our Old Testament a little bit, we remember that, uh, of course, we have Moses uh, choosing the 70 elders who were to be prophets to Israel to teach the law and to, to guide them because Moses couldn't do it all himself. He had to, had to choose those 70 elders, those 70 prophets. Um, in fact, the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, Curtis Mitch makes mention of the fact that the Jewish Sanhedrin had been, were composed of a court of 71, meaning the 70 plus one, the one representing Moses. And so, uh, so this was seen as the embodiment of the governance, uh, really, of the, of, the, of the kingship of God through his the ministry of these 70 elders uh, with Moses. But the number 70 also had another uh, point of significance in Genesis 10. We had the table of the nations. So after the flood, we have the table of the nations representing, again, this universality of the call. So, so in the mission of the 70, we have a fulfillment of what, what, what Israel was called to be and what the whole world was called to be, uh, to be a manifestation of the rule of God, the kingdom of God in this world, to overcome uh, the devil and his angels, overcome the world and the flesh as well. So this being an important uh, backdrop, again, to the scribe asking Jesus a question. You know, this is not just, you know, somebody walking up to Jesus. He happens to be, you know, teaching a, a Sunday school lesson, and he's like, or a Sabbath school lesson, and he says, I, you know, Jesus, I got a question. You know, I'm going to test you here for a moment. He's, he knows what's going on. You know, they, these guys have gone out. They've come back, and uh, there is a movement Jesus is, is, you know, this messianic campaign heading towards Jerusalem, and he feels like, I, I need to stop this. I need to somehow derail this. If only I could get Jesus saying something wrong, something incorrect, so I'm going to test him. You know, this happens sometimes with politicians on the campaign trail. It's the gotcha moment, you know, and so, and so this scribe, who really was a combination of canon lawyer and catechist, uh, for the people of Israel. The scribes had a very prominent place in, in Israelite life, uh, and they taught the law uh, with the goal to making sure that it was on the hearts and minds of, of God's people. And so this was their role. So he saw himself as sort of being the one who's going to stop this, this messianic campaign that he believed to be false. 
And so he's going to test Jesus as a result. And he chooses the topic of eternal life, right? He goes after this. The topic of eternal this, life. Exactly. And this uh, is, a, is a fascinating topic. And I don't know that we, we need to get into it too much here, but there yeah, is this right. whole debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the debate right. about resurrection. about that. So Jesus in the middle of, in some sense, this impossible situation. I always, <laughs> I always feel like whenever, whenever this issue comes up for him, he's wrong. Like, there's a whole group of people standing there that think he's wrong. You know? Right. Right. And, uh, go ahead. No, no, I think it's really true. Yeah, because the question is really, you know, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, who, and this, this question of, in, of eternal life is an important one. Now, we, of course, from a Christian perspective, um, in, the, in the revelation of Christ and in the teachings of the church, we have a view of eternal life, which may have only been in shadow for those uh, of the Jews at that time in the first century. And so when he's asking about eternal life, there could be some allusion to, to uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, where there's this discussion about, uh, about those whose, whose names are written in the, in the book of life and those who are the righteous who are raised to life. This is something where this eternal kingdom, this sense of being part of this, this kingdom that is to come, that will be a messianic kingdom, very much in the mind of the Jews at that time, but how they understood it, they certainly didn't understand it with the clarity that Christians have with the, with the new covenant revelation. Uh, oftentimes they would reduce it more to worldly terms, uh, mm. basically a reconstitution of the Davidic kingdom understood militarily, understood in terms of, you know, the typical standards of wealth, pleasure, and power that we, you know, we tend to idolize ourselves and, uh, and would be prominent among the nations, ruling among the nations. So they had a certain expectation, no doubt described when he's talking about eternal life, this is kind of what he's thinking. He's thinking about this kingdom, this Davidic kingdom that's going to be restored. And so when he asks this question, what, you know, what about eternal life? Jesus comes back with a typical rabbinical uh, response. Well, what does the law say? Right. And so this man responds properly and Jesus affirms what he says. You know, he goes back to Deuteronomy and to Leviticus, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms. You 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 know, go ahead. You you uh, you mentioned De- Deuteronomy and, Levit- and Leviticus, and I I think it's interesting. You know, normally I think we hear this text and we think this is this is New Testament teaching, right? right. This is this is Jesus breaking free from the law mm. and saying it's all about love, right? He's got his braided ponytail and he's got his Birkenstocks on, and he's smoking the peace pipe here. And uh, but but I think it's a corrective for us to realize that maybe we misunderstood the law, that the, the heart of the law, as it was understood by the Jews of Jesus' day, is right here in Deuteronomy chapter, it's, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18, if you want to go back and look at those. And so, I'm sorry, I, I kind of jumped and cut you off, but oh, this is, it's, it's important as we're considering what is, you know, they go, they really want to get into what this law is, what the meaning of the law is, what the heart of it is. And Jesus is a, as a kind of an apologetic, being a rabbi, but in an apologetic way, he goes right after it. And the guy's got to agree with him. And then, and then he, the, this guy kind of responds as Jesus, he asks the question of the questioner. Right. No, exactly. And, and, and I think, I think that's such a great point for us to take away. You know, the heart of the theology of Deuteronomy is love. Love is one of the great unsung themes of, of the book of Deuteronomy. And yet, you know, Jesus uh, is affirming that this is really at the heart of the law, love of God and love of neighbor, 
really the, the, the two tablets of the, uh, of the Decalogue as well. And so we, we don't want to sort of create this artificial divide like uh, the heretic Marcion where, you know, the God of the Old Testament was the God of judgment, the God of wrath, you know, and, and the God of death even. And the God of the New Testament is, you know, it's right. all love and, and so forth. Uh, so Jesus does get at the heart of the law, and he and he's going to the uh, the scribe asks him this additional question, and you can almost hear uh, in the Greek, "Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah." Well, you know, let me ask you this question: Who is my neighbor? You know, because again, his objective, Luke is very clear. His objective is to trip Jesus up, and 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 his messianic campaign towards Jerusalem uh, to get him to say something that's incorrect. Uh, and so Jesus tells a parable, and he tells a parable in a way to, to correct some of the vision of the scribe, but he also tells the parable in a way to correct some of the views of his disciples, especially after this uh, Samaritan village rejects uh, Jesus, because he's going to make the Samaritan the hero of this story, and he recognizes, hey, there's bias here, there's a uh, People, people don't like the Samaritans. They've got all sorts of reasons not to like them, even among my disciples. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them like Elijah the prophet? And, and Jesus rebukes that. He, he's there to show mercy, and he's going to make the Samaritan the hero of the story, again, I think as a corrective to both his disciples and the scribe. You know, you can almost see, you can almost see Jesus walking down the Jordan Valley. Mm-hmm. And as, I mean, this guy, by this point in his ministry, I mean, by all accounts, he's a superstar. Yeah. And anyone that wants to be healed has got to go to Jesus. So there's crowds that are following him. Yes. And you could almost see the Jews, the, 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 uh, the, 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 and, and hear the scribes together and mm-hmm. the Samaritans coming out of their towns to see this guy. Right. And to see Jesus and draw close to him and they're almost and there's there's a real tension right there i'm going to ask you to kind of paint the picture for (laughs) us uh, of what's going on because we have now the story that takes place right Uh, a certain man was going down going down from jerusalem jericho that's that's uh charged with meaning because they're going down not only because jerusalem's on a hill but you always go up to jerusalem and down from jerusalem because the theological point of encountering god absolutely uh, to Jericho, and then on comes passing by this same place, uh, these two other guys, a priest and a Levite. We're going to need to make a distinction there. Why? Uh, what's the difference between a priest and a Levite? Yeah. And um, but why are they going by that way? Yeah. So help you just paint the paint the paint the kind of country scene for us, if you will. Terrible. Absolutely. Well, yes, because. And the first thing I think to identify is that this, this particular individual uh, who is the subject of the story, uh, who's, who's journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, very likely it's, it's assumed he's, de- he's a devout Jew. Uh, he's been up to Jerusalem. He's attended the services. Mm. Uh, he's, uh, you know, fulfilled his religious observances. And now he's going down from Jerusalem into Jericho. And like you say, there is that sort of that type, typological aspect of, you know, coming from an encounter to God, and you know, we always go up to that encounter of God, and then we come down. Well, he's, he's gone to fulfill his religious observances, and he's passing through an area which was nicknamed the Way of Blood. And, and it was called the Way of Blood for a good reason, because this is where thieves and robbers and, and hordes would, 
would attack these pilgrims who were headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So along this particular path, uh, it was very common to see that kind of activity. So those who were hearing Jesus talk, they would say, oh yeah, I, I, I probably walked down that path before, or I, you know, I know exactly where he's talking about. You know, if you turn down Interstate 80 to the left, <laughs> long turn, you know, it's that kind of thing. So for them, they know what Jesus is talking about. And in this descent, now, now Augustine and Origen, uh, as, as church fathers, really kind of see in this an allegory, uh, this story kind of pointing to a deeper level of spiritual meaning, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. They see it as an example uh, of the descent of Adam from the mountain of paradise, from the presence of God uh, to the valley of exile. And so there is this passageway where, you know, Adam, because of uh, his willingness to listen to the temptation of the serpent, uh, and this is, of course, where you see the imagery of the thieves and the robbers, he's going to descend down the mountain of God, head towards the valley, and he's going to be left half dead. You know, he was struck with a mortal blow because of his sin. And so, you know, the devil came and robbed Adam uh, of the glory that was his uh, from the, the, the moment of his creation. He robbed him of that garment of light, that garment of glory, left him naked, wounded, mortally on the road. And so I think Augustine and, and Origen rightly uh, see in this an allegory for our own state, our own place uh, in, in terms of in exile from paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the whole of salvation history is really about turning things around and moving back up the mountain of God to come back into the, into the healing presence of God. But uh, for, for them, these, these church fathers, they see this. And I think it's a, it's a good way to think about uh, the particular story, this, this, uh, this righteous Jewish man who has now been attacked uh, as an innocent and now is, is left on the road half dead. Well, I want to come back to that interpretation. It's, it's, very, it's a fascinating interpretation. I think it's really helpful to understand, to yeah. kind of pierce into the, the parable itself and start to draw some spiritual benefit from it because it puts it more in a, in a cosmic salvation history type of a context. And then, and then ask the question, who is Jesus in this story? Who's the innkeeper? What's the inn? All these questions start to kind of pop out for us. But now we've got, before we go back to that, we've got, we've got these two guys, right? This, this priest yeah. and the Levite that are, that are heading down through that area, presumably for the same reason, they've been up at the temple worshiping. Now they're coming down and they encounter this, this, this guy. Yeah, they encounter one of their lay faithful lying on the side of the road, <laughs> naked, bruised, possibly dead, and, and they're faced with a choice, right? So we know that the priests, for instance, these were the clergy who offered the sacrifice, if you will, in the Old Covenant, and the Levites were their assistants. So they had gone up to Jerusalem to do their religious duty as priests and Levites, and had completed that, presumably because they were headed, they were headed down the mountain as well. Um, so they had already fulfilled the law, if you will, in terms of its ceremonial requirements, its ritual purity requirements and everything else. And now they were headed uh, away because their time of service had been done. Now, so they encounter this man. Now, the law had, um, you know, we had the moral law, we had the ceremonial law, we had the civil law. Uh, and Jesus, again, in speaking to the scribe, he would have been well aware of all the particulars of the law and would have recognized that there was a, a purity law that precluded, especially uh, for the Levites and, and, and Levitical priests, that they couldn't really touch the body of a dead person uh, unless it was a relative, unless it was a close relative. 
There was also, of course, in, in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, the oral law, something which allowed them to, to do so if the body had been neglected. Because again, humanity, mankind made in the image and likeness of God, this was a teaching of the Torah, this was a teaching of the law. And so if a body had been neglected, they could minister to that body. Of course, they weren't even sure if this guy was dead or alive. They kind of assumed he was dead. So they stay away from the body. They have an option. I can either help this guy, even though, yes, it might violate the ritual purity law, but we've got the Mishnah that's saying, hey, you know, it's okay if it's a neglected body, I can, I can show mercy to one of my lay faithful lying, lying dead on the ground, potentially. And they choose out of, what you can say, scrupulosity, but uh, they, they choose out of a lack of charity, uh, they choose the, the, the law that doesn't show mercy uh, to this individual. And so uh, they're given a choice and they choose not to show mercy, which of course, given the answer of the scribe, uh, quoting from, uh, from the Torah, quoting from Deuteronomy, from Leviticus, uh, love of God, love of neighbor, it, they were not responding properly to the actual command of God that would have fulfilled the law. You know, you were saying earlier about this, this, how the parables work and that there's this deeper meaning here. I can't help but think now is Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's like, you know, the picture becomes very big, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the question of the ability of the, of the law to save the law as at least as it was being interpreted. And then it kind of draws us back into this kind of allegorical interpretation or deeper interpretation of what these guys, what these guys represent. Exactly. The, the law as, um, as had been given to Moses entrusted to Moses and taught to Israel was a provisional law. It, it served a teaching purpose, which was to, um, to help Israel, to prepare Israel to receive the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And in that provisional purpose, it had certain ceremonial regulations, uh, purity laws, especially pertaining to death and blood and all these different things, because, you know, ultimately, death had not been conquered at that point. It would not be conquered until Christ uh, would come and conquer death on the cross and be raised from the dead. And so these purity laws were very important because they were to, to signify that the priesthood was going to be untouched by the power of death. Was not going to be uh, was not going to be made impure by the power of death, and so Jesus ultimately comes and fulfills all of that by entering into death and then destroying its power, and so it no longer is, is something that overpowers. Well, but here you have two priests, or excuse me, a priest and a Levite, who are under the law, and they don't recognize the messianic implications of what they're called to do at that moment, which is to enter into into death into the realm of death and to redeem one of their own. Uh, and so as a result, it shows the powerlessness of the law to really save us from uh, sin and death. You know, the mortality of, of our physical being and the mortality of the soul, and, the, and not necessarily the destruction of the soul, but the fact that sin would destroy the life of the soul, the life of God in the soul. And so they don't enter into that mystery. They're not willing to be the, the, the true priests that Israel needs. Uh, the one that Adam was supposed to be, you know, to enter into mortal combat with the serpent. Instead, they, they use the law as an excuse to walk away from it. So the law doesn't save. It only points the way to salvation, which is going to be prophetically fulfilled by Jesus. Yeah, so now we, let's, we've got this image that we have to, to this guy, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, uh, right. who, who I don't think it's, it's hard for us now to realize that, that it's, it's Jesus. 
yes. he's a good Samaritan with all of this baggage, by the way, of what the Jews think of the Samaritans, right? And right. um, so, uh, so with, with all of that, he kind of placed himself in the, in the midst of this, uh, this story. So let's take a look at this guy to help us understand the, the image of the Good Samaritan, kind of the, the aspects we're supposed to be drawing from it. Right, because the Samaritan is really the hero of the, of the story. And, and it's meant to be a way of teaching uh, who, who Christ is in relationship to, to all, of the, all the Jews and all the Gentiles and, and really the whole world. He is that great compassionate one, that, that true priest who is going to enter into the sufferings and heal our wounds and, and bind them. This is one of the, uh, coming back to that allegorical interpretation where uh, with Augustine and Origen, you know, the binding of the wounds, the pouring of wine and oil, they saw that as really a, a, an image of the sacraments, yeah. the sacramental mysteries of the church. Through these uh, material realities, God is going to convey the touch of his healing grace uh, and mercy. And so he binds our wounds, and then he takes this Jew, this devout Jew who had been mortally wounded, and he puts him on his beast, uh, presumably a donkey. And then in doing that, he walks and, and, and leads the beast along to an inn. Now, this leading the beast along, we can think of really him taking the form of a servant because it was the servants who always would, would walk ahead of the beasts of burden to carry them along. Well, Jesus, in a sense, uh, in a very real sense, is, is like the Good Samaritan because you know, he becomes like us, taking the form of a servant. We, we think about, if we go back to our Bibles, uh, St. Paul's uh, letter to the, to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If we could just read that just for a moment. Sure, I think ahead, yeah. It's a good reflection here on, on the nature of the, the Good Samaritan and how he images Christ. Philippians, that's, that's in the New, is that in the New Testament, Father? Definitely the New Testament. <laughs> Definitely the New Testament. Philippians. Yeah, you guys can find that easily. Go past your Gospels. Go past um, uh, Acts of the Apostles and Romans. And right. you know, just keep flipping Ephesians. So we'll get there. Philippians. One we'll typically hear is announced as the, the letter of St. Paul to the, to the Philippines. There you go. (laughs) It's the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. Okay. And St. Paul writes, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. I'll just pause there for a moment. I think we certainly see that in this particular story. Count others more significant than yourself. This self-giving, this, mm-hmm. uh, this kenosis of the Samaritan in, in, to someone who is an enemy of him, a sworn enemy, at least in, in terms of the culture. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, we, we're familiar with this verse. We've heard it many times. And if we think about what's, what's really going on here in the story of the Good Samaritan in relationship to Jesus, uh, the Samaritan suddenly appears 
going down this path. Uh, Jesus, in a sense, suddenly appears in the midst of the earth and in the midst of God's people, Israel. And now, of course, he's not like a comet coming crashing down to earth. God had a plan that was gradually fulfilled. And of course, in the fullness of time, we know he was born of the Virgin Mary. But, but Jesus appears on the scene in a public way, and he sees his wounded neighbor. And he's going to empty himself. He's going to condescend and empty himself and pour out his life for the healing and all his goods, his material goods, everything he has, he's going to give to this individual to save their life, to redeem them. Uh, this, uh, this, in a sense, is really a fulfillment of what salvation history is all about. According to the Greek fathers, the incarnation was not just simply a rescue plan. God had, from the very beginning of creation, ordained that his son, his eternal son, would take flesh. And this was to be a supernatural fulfillment of, of, of creation as well as mankind in, in the image and likeness of God, in the kingdom of God. This was God's eternal plan. But after the fall, uh, it became, uh, it took on the character of a rescue mission. So this, this eternal plan took on the character of a rescue mission. And so God condescends, the Greek word is katabasis, God is going to descend and, and condescend to enter into the mystery of human suffering in order to, uh, the Greek word anabasis, to elevate us, to bring us up, to raise us up, to participate in his glory. And so the, the, coming to the allegorical interpretation, the beast of burden, according to, the, to some of the fathers, actually represents the incarnation. And Jesus mm-hmm. taking the form of a servant by going ahead of the beast of burden, drawing the, uh, the, the, the man to a place of healing, uh, Jesus is condescending as the eternal son to take on flesh, to raise us up, to, uh, to, be, to be healed uh, in the image and likeness of God. You know, it just opens up, what you're saying opens up, so many uh, beautiful ways of understanding this text. I mean, the inn becomes the church in the yes. mind of the fathers and, and so forth. It's just in the innkeeper, the bishop. Mm-hmm. You yeah. just show me there's so much here that is so, and so beautiful. And, and, this, and, and what you were mentioning about the oil and the wine and, and the, the mysteries of our faith, you know, holy confession and uh, baptism, you know, Eucharist, all these things are just these, ways in which God's bringing his, his healing mercy. And now we can understand why this gospel is given to us now in our liturgical cycle as we are preparing ourselves for uh, the Phillips fast and our preparations for the nativity of the Lord. You know, as we, we kind of draw to a close here, Father, there's just so much we've covered in this study. It's been excellent, really. And I thank you for that. Sure. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot we can take away. I want to help us, help us take a few, like just a, one, two, three, you know. A couple of things that are really critically important. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, first of all, I think, I think the points that you bring up in terms of the allegorical interpretation of the church as the inn and the innkeeper, I think, especially for those of us who are clergy, we, we understand that, you know, the wounded have been entrusted to us to care for. So unlike the priests and the Levi, or the, the priest and the Levite, the church uh, is, is going to, is, needs to care for those who are sick. And we have the remedies that have been given to us mm-hmm. and we're giving them out of our own means. So, you know, the, uh, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan says to the, uh, to the innkeeper, look, take care of him. Anything that you, you pay for, I'm going to repay you in full when I return. Yep. So we have this sense that, you know, the Lord is going to come back and, and not only is he going to reward us, he's also going to call us to account for how generous we have been 
to those who are in need of our healing. So that's the first thing. I think the church is a place of healing. It's that in and the clergy have been entrusted uh, with those who are in need of healing. I think the second thing is we have to really understand that when Jesus speaks to the scribe and he says, you know, who is the one who, you know, was, who kept the law? He basically says, you know, was the one who showed him mercy. He says, go and do likewise. I keep thinking about the, the words of the divine liturgy at the Ambon prayer when the priest says, you know, let us go forth in peace. And the people respond in the name of the Lord. And then the deacon raises his arm, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. You know, this healing oil of mercy uh, that, that comes down from the Lord. Well, this prayer, let us go forth in peace. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the liturgy after the liturgy. This is where we exercise our baptismal priesthood collectively by being the Good Samaritan, being like Jesus, showing mercy to those who are in need, and bringing them to the end. It means that we're called to be evangelizers. Why? Because the whole world is sick. The whole world is in need of healing. The whole world is wounded. So like the Good Samaritan, we are to not just go forth in peace to come back next Sunday uh, by ourselves, but we need to bring people with us. We need to be, you know, evangelistic. We need to, to lead people to the source of healing. And, uh, and this is what, what the Lord intends for his church. So I would say those two things especially, keeping the commandment of loving God, loving neighbor, understanding that our Lord is going to come, he is going to repay us, that we give of ourselves, and that we are all commissioned to be like the Good Samaritan uh, and, to, and to show mercy to our brothers and sisters who are in need. You know, um, as we come to a, a, a close here today, I, I think the, the biggest challenge for us that we face today in our modern American society is this aspect of, is God going to provide, you know, yeah. is it because we're always so worried about money, we're worried about, you know, and, and, I, and that's, there's so many challenges, invitations, gifts in this parable, but here's one that we're going to have to really consider. Do we trust the Lord to provide? Are we willing to go out and engage in the ministry of Christ through our ministry, his ministry in us, um, that it's possible to bring about the salvation of my neighbor, to pray to the Lord this, this Sunday, to, to open our hearts to that and to go forth, like you're saying, to go forth in, in peace and to bring that me saving message of Jesus Christ to a, a world that is so clearly wounded by sin. Father, thank you so much again for being with us today. A uh, wonderful study and uh, just a blessing to be able to dive into the text. May God bless you all we, as we prepare for this coming Sunday. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.